So are you are you interviewing me or am I interviewing you? I'm interviewing you. <laughs> yep. Figure your guests. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Who is this? Thank you for once again tuning in to the Poker Zoo. You can find us at persuadio.nl. Each of the episodes, including this one, are listed there in individual blog posts. And you are free to leave a comment, a criticism, a critique, or a question underneath each of the episodes. We would love to hear your feedback. The podcast was designed by Persuadio and myself for his own coaching students, members of the back room, a private poker community. And, of course, anyone else who would like to listen in, which is probably most of you. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to get ratings and feedback there or any of the other podcast aggregators or Android uh, podcast aggregators of your choice. Or just listen on the website. Since this is probably the last podcast before Christmas, I wanted to wish everyone a delightful Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And after the podcast's ending, I am including a little bit of extra audio for those of you who are singers or are into harmony or like the idea of how harmony parts fit together. And I know that's a stupid explanation, but you'll understand if you actually listen to it. This week, Persuadio interviews one of his most intellectually challenged students and probably the worst poker player in the group, but we submit it as an exercise in what not to do when playing poker. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. I'm Persuadio, the normal host, and uh, today we have a very special guest. We have our own announcer on. I've talked to him before. You know him. He's more popular and lovable than I am. Welcome, Dean Martin. <laughs> uh, definitely not more popular and uh, certainly not more lovable, but uh, thank you, and uh, uh, thanks for taking a few minutes to uh, uh, chat with me today. Well, I uh, don't... <laughs> necessarily think uh that i'm as lovable as you are uh, nor do i have the pipes to carry off that beautiful serenade that the the barbershop gave us that was quite nice of you to put that together well i was surprised that the barbershop quartet got any love at all from the poker audience but it was interesting because got a lot of positive comments so uh <laughs> it's you know one of my interests so um you know who would have thought yeah, I mean that's that's terrific. I always wanted to sing, but I was too busy smoking, so it couldn't work. Those two don't go together very well. So stop smoking and start singing. Yeah, they don't. They really don't. We wanted to talk to Dean because I hear that he's been downswinging a little bit. Uh, poker's always easy until they start kicking you in the nuts, isn't it? Right. Well, yes. Uh, October was kind of a break-even month. Uh, it made a decent profit to the first part of the year. November was about the same, um, maybe $200 profit, $300 profit uh, in November. And then December started out, I was really expecting a serious upswing. And December, uh, again, started out slight down uh, level, if not uh, down a couple hundred the first two weeks or the first week and a half. Um, this week I'm back up a bit, but still, uh, at this point in my career, I was poker career, you know, scaled things back in my business first part of the year and hoped to focus on poker and be at 10 to 15 grand a month by this time. Mm, well, we got to get you there. Um, but we'll get to that. I know I'm concerned about you, but I have to get a few things off my chest. 
the idiotic things I hear on poker Twitter every day, which almost spoil my love for the game. Um, and they even finally, I try to ignore them, but they even come to my own front door this past couple of weeks. And, and so I, I wanted to comment on this. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things about having opinions and, and, and allowing for speech and allowing for interaction is that if you have an opinion that isn't particularly controversial, it's not really worth having, is it? Indeed. I mean, if everyone has the same opinion, why would we talk about it? Well, anyway, um, a guest that you interviewed on our show, uh, Charles Murray, who's a poker player. You know him as a poker player in your games. And he's better known as a social scientist, etc. I don't have to go into it. I don't know everything about him. Put out a call to high-stakes players looking for some some research, some interview time for, for him to write a book, right? This happened. Am I am I getting it the story correct? You're correct. Charles is a social scientist. Um, he came from a somewhat humble background, I think, in uh, flyover country. And because of SATs, standardized testing, was recognized to have very high intelligence, maybe not SATs, IQ tests maybe, but uh, went to, then went to some of the best schools. And so he, because it pulled him out of a situation where uh, he would not have known uh, all the great things that he's done otherwise, is a big fan of intelligence um, metrics and um, uh, so has studied that uh, prolifically. He's a New York Times bestselling author, he's a very entertaining person to talk to, but, uh, and he also plays poker. Sure. So, you know, a respected member of the poker community, if we may use that word, I, I think it's kind of silly, given that it's sort of an anti-community community, kind of an exaggerated competitive pyramid scheme, essentially. <clears throat> so talking about the poker community is always a little silly, as if we're all a bunch of knitters that get together. Anyway, so Mr. Haxton sends out this tweet warning everyone about collaborating with someone who's done some research into IQ and differences in societies and cultures and IQ, which is always going to change and the measurements are always this and that. Essentially, someone researching into something that not everyone finds to be completely um, PC, not uh, in, in tune with the times. But the funny thing is, that's exactly what his interests happen to be. And some other people are interested in this and even those who disagree with him do it as well. Now, when I looked at this Twitter thread, most of the people were in agreement with uh, Mr. Haxton. And one of the silliest ones was, well, don't welcome this man into our community. Please don't welcome Mr. Murray into our community. Well, I'm afraid the horse is out of the barn. Hasn't this guy been playing poker for most of his life? Correct. He's been playing poker longer than probably anyone in that thread has even been alive, much less playing. Right. And so it struck me as very bizarre that this community, which essentially is a kind of competitive pyramid scheme, needs to be protected when no one really knows how many murderers, rapists, thieves, and other thugs that you routinely sit down with. But if someone who gets into some research that's controversial and maybe have a point, maybe somewhere is a point in it, this suddenly becomes a big problem. And we're all too 
uh, precious to have him around, even though he's already been around. I mean, it has to be one of the stupidest threads I've seen in a long time. But related to this, you know, I spend a lot of time with poker players, and it's not the, the so-called recreational players that are really the problem. It's the real poker players, the ones who are committed to poker. They are so insulated, they don't they barely know anything. And we always have to hear about this and that, who's a fascist and whatnot. And maybe if they're getting involved with Mr. Murray, they're supporting fascism. When they don't know the first thing about the word, um, it comes from, because I study Latin, <clears throat> it comes from this group of rods that the Romans would carry around. Certain, certain guards and whatnot would have these rods. And one of the rods would be an axe. And I think this even went back from before Roman times. And eventually this symbology was adopted much, much later in the 20th century by the Mussolini's party, which became the fascist party. But Mussolini didn't like Hitler in particular, didn't like his book, said it was pretty dumb, essentially. And all the other fascist ideologies, the ones they call fascism, are really... They took the, the idea of the fascies, this rod, these group of rods, because it was solidarity. Now, I don't know if the Romans used it in a sense of solidarity. I really doubt it. Um, but that's how they, they took it. They took it to mean that. And authority, if those things are, are symbols of authority, well, all the other problem governments were really authoritarian too. And they weren't fascist. They were either communist or whatnot or different strains of authoritarianism. And in other words, when you go around complaining about fascism, it's like calling all paper products Kleenex. There was the Italian fascists. And there's all sorts of authorita authoritarian regimes and thought cycles that exist on the spectrum. And it has nothing to do with left or right. So when you're a poker player – and you're going around worried about this or that person being a fascist. It basically just shows you don't know much. And these things get on my nerves. Now, how long have I been ranting? Well, you've been ranting quite a while. Um, but you gave me some insight that I didn't have before. So I enjoyed it. I don't know if anyone else will. All right. Well, maybe we'll just delete all that. It does appear to have irritated you a bit. Driving me nuts. <laughs> but the poker community is a bit odd because they are... The, the poker pros are a fairly intelligent bunch, and so they seem to think they know a bit about everything. It's a funny community, and it and you when you play a game to get away from the rest of your life. But if you're a professional involved in a game, you really have to watch yourself. You can go down a, a real rabbit hole of getting divorced from reality. And, you know, poker is on the edge of what's acceptable. You have to make an effort to fit into the world. It doesn't try to fit into your world. Anyway, you end up with a lot of silly people saying a lot of silly things. And uh, reading them gets me cranky. Now, what, what is it you wanted? Why were we talking about? <laughs> well, I, you, you, went, you went. Is that the only Twitter thread that caused you uh, um, a lot of discontent this week? Or, uh, or were there others? Oh no, there are others, but I'm over it now. I've been complaining. We we, we need we need to get back on track here. And we focus do need on to get back. You. This on is track. about you. You're the guest. Yeah. 
Uh, so, you know, what, what, what's going on? Why are you losing in the games? What, you know, tell, give me some background here. Well, I had felt like I was a fairly intelligent person, at least up until a few months ago when I, uh, went on a, um, break even slash losing streak. And, you know, at this point in my poker career, I assumed that I would be smart enough to be a winning player. And, um, you know, you lose a few pots, you lose a few pots several days in a row. You have several losing sessions in a row. Suddenly you start to question your entire uh, system of play. You question your entire identity. You question whether you're you have uh, worth as an individual, and so should I continue with poker, get a real job, uh, just quit life altogether? I mean, where do I go from here? Well, you should quit poker. You should do awesome things. Thank you. That's that's all. It's been, it's been a good interview. <laughs> <laughs> It's, there's so much to do in life, and playing cards isn't isn't all of it. Now, if you enjoy the game, I think you should uh, carry on with the game. But you've got to do other things. I mean, there's not that much money in poker. Very few people actually get rich from poker. It's mostly a pipe dream. Uh, what's in the news today on Twitter is just some psychopath named Charles Jiang or something or Chow. Like basically tormenting this other pro, Taylor Carroll, uh, for some money, trying to basically blackmail him for a mere $1,000 because he's probably getting staked to play and live at the bike. And They both sound like psychopaths. Well, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put Taylor in that category. Now, I know he wanders around like a douchebag with a backpack and, and all that, and he's one of those guys, but... And he goes, he goes by Mike Clitoris on Reddit. So you, it's hard to have sympathy for anyone who goes by Mike Clitoris. But the point being is that the community is full, this so-called community is full of bad guys. And now one of the other threads that was driving me crazy was from, you know, Andrew Barber, who's thought of as one of the intellectuals of poker. And he describes himself as a flaneur, which is... Essentially, if you know anything uh, about the French, it's uh, a word that describes someone who walks around gardens marveling at their own thoughts. Um, and he tells us, well, there's really too much content out there, and people should really be focused not on making things, but on uh, consuming things. And I, I feel that that's a pretty fair statement in some respects. Well, it asks the question, what is all this great content that's being underappreciated? Uh, do we have to hear from Daniel Negreanu? Do we need to hear the opinions of Mike Matisau all the time? Is everything from Joey Ingram just spot on uh, wonderful? Uh, I really don't know that all these things are so are so great. And that people are trying to do things that might be interesting is probably just how the market works. And that one day these minor things that you don't care about might become more important than hearing from tired old Phil Helmuth for the millionth time. But no, Andrew tells us what we really need to do is, is, is focus on, you know, 
poker go and, and watching a bunch of basically donkeys get destroyed by pros or get lucky. I mean, why is that even interesting? But we're, we're scolded. We've definitely been scolded. I thought we were supposed to talk about you. Well, I, I thought so also, but I did enjoy how you responded to him and that you, uh, you said, Hey dude, why don't you come on my useless little information podcast? Uh, and, uh, we'll talk about how useless the information really is. I would love it. Uh, smart guy, uh, lots of pompous opinions. He should make a great guest. Anyway, um, we're here to talk about you because I'm concerned about you, Dean. Uh, you're the best uh, poker podcast announcer in poker. Uh, clearly, you have those that melodious bass voice. And we need to keep you in action, but you sound dispirited. Uh, tell me about some hands that you've played, and maybe we can get at the bottom of, of why you're, you're not winning. Well, my dispiritedness comes not only from hands that I lost, but from just um, podcasts and poker and life in general. Uh, so I wanted to go back and just talk about where we've come from and uh, where we're going. Let's go back. Um, you know, you mentioned you you mentioned my melodious tunes. Well, about two years ago, I started bugging you in the chat group that I wanted to start a podcast. I've had, I've done several podcasts in the past and different interests that I had. And I thought, um, a, a, another poker podcast, something a little different would be interesting. So, uh, I don't know if, if you remember, but I would bring it up in the chat every now and then. And, uh, everyone said too many podcasts out there. So last October, I think it was, <laughs> <laughs> you finally said, I'm going to start a podcast at the beginning of the year with Dean if he's interested. And uh, so I just wanted to let everyone know. And of course, I texted back, I'd be glad to be involved, but uh, there's a million poker podcasts out there. So how are we going to differentiate ourselves? And you mentioned that, um, well, what we could do is interview people in the chat group and the TBR and kind of make it seem like an exclusive insider group. However, it's completely public and anyone else with any voyeuristic tendencies can listen in. Uh, so that's what we did. January, uh, first yeah, of January started. And, uh, two things. I think it's a bit different than what else is out there. And I think it's, uh, somewhat entertaining, but most of all, you know, you mentioned this, Andrew, uh, is a barber, Andrew, Correct. um, you know, talking about there's too much content out there. Well, there, there's a lot of content out there, but I think the reason many of us came to you for coaching is that you kind of have a different take on the, you know, just the standard poker, knowledge base that's out there, you know, CLP and, and, you know, the stuff that's regurgitated from, from Hanson over the years and Ed Miller and so forth. And, you know, there's, you know, Jonathan Little has more content out there than everyone, but I don't know that his, uh, diagnosis is all that good sometimes, whereas you kind of have a different take and that's why 
I wanted to do something with you because I thought we had something interesting to, to say. Uh, that being said, I've been kind of frustrated with the, the fact that uh, Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Google Podcasts kind of ignores us. You know, we're buried down in the ranking somewhere. Maybe it just takes time. So I've been disillusioned with that a bit. And then poker downturn, some disillusioned with poker. Um, so there we go. What's your take on the last year and, and thoughts? Wow. You're, you're just airing our laundry in, in the public. <laughs> uh, you're just hanging out all out there. A little bit. Well, you know what? I have an, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with you in a way I want to expand and I'm going to do it not in a way that's going to require me necessarily to finally crack this mysterious code that gets us listed by Google. Now, look, I looked on Google podcasts the other day and they, I mean, if you type in pot poker podcasts into Google, Google, they come up with stuff that was from 2008. Exactly. Uh, that hasn't had an episode in a decade, never mind a year, but in a decade. Uh, now, and I have twisted, I have turned all the little dials. I have looked read at all the CEO, uh, the SEO rather. And I also registered the pokerzoo.com hoping that would work. And still uh, no change. Now, I'm fine with all that, in a sense, because I think I have the way forward. I'm going to be still focusing on the TBR members. I will not ignore us, but I'm going to be adding some bigger picture guests, people in other industries who happen to play poker, important people, people with uh, the connection between what poker is and the real world, which kind of relates to what I was talking about. Because it's the poker players themselves who are the life fish often. And the winners in life don't play poker full time. They do lots of other things. But they dabble in poker. So you're, you're talking about people like Charles Murray and Pat Burke that I interviewed. I'm talking about, <laughs> I think those were good starts. Those were good starts. But I'm talking about people uh, in all sorts of industries and beyond just our circle. But I'll be making an active effort to reach out to find interesting guests who, yes, they play a little poker and we'll talk poker and we'll help them with their poker game because I am a strategist and a coach. But I want to talk about how poker fits into society. I want to talk about, I want to hear their, their uh, ideas and all sorts of things. For instance, um, leading up to that, I'm going to talk to one of the vloggers who's also producing poker fashion. And it, it occurred to me, finally I had this light bulb as to why poker fashion never works. And that's that, well, why do you, you want to dress like an expert poker player? It's like a hunter going out, you know, in the bright orange gear and taking along like a trumpet and a snare drum and then wondering where the deer are. Uh, that's not how it works. You have to dress like a whale. Whale gear is the thing. I want to. I want to hear from fashion experts about. Well, how, what does clothing say about us? What's the the suggestion, both in your daily life and at the table, about what the small things that you do, um, about how that all works together in terms of your presentation and your image and what you bring to society and to the poker table? I think that sounds a lot more interesting to people, and I think that is what's going to help break us out of this rut where Google doesn't care about us very much. What do you think about that? Well, I think that sounds intriguing. Uh, plus, what I like about it is that 
anything that can branch um, inbound links from other genres, in other words, someone who's an author, someone who is an entrepreneur, someone who has made uh, a splash in another genre, pulling links back to the podcast from those uh, interviewees would, uh, would really improve our listings. All right. Well, hopefully we just delete all of that. We can't tell everyone our secret plans. Maybe some of it. This is going to be an editing challenge, Dean. This, this might be the greatest editing challenge you've had so far. And plus, you got to delete all my ranting about poker and fascism. I don't know what my problem is today. I am going to leave the entirety in place. As wow, what a buddy you are. Most of the inquiries coming in want to know how many people you've actually killed in being <laughs> the mysterious person you are. Poker hands. Poker oh, my hands. God. Two all right, five fine. No limit. One limper, I raised a 20 with 7-7, seven, seven, diamond, spade, Yes. Now, hang on, hang on. We're we're going to fix a lot of things today. Hang on. Now, if you're going to tell me a hand history, what's the primary fundamental structure of No Limit? What's the most important piece of information? Stack sizes. Stack sizes. Uh -huh. And that's a little lesson for everyone. It's not that there's a limper and you raise, because if the stack sizes are 20 big blinds and the stack sizes are something different or there's something else, all of that has far more um, effect on what the strategy is going to be than whatever two cards you have for the most part. I mean, aside from the very top hands, which just go in no matter what. So what are the stacks? What's going on? What's our positions here? We are, I, don't, I didn't write this down, but I'm pretty sure we're about 600 effective, 650, something like that. Let's assume 650 effective. All right. With whom? Everyone? Everyone of import. Uh, myself, the big blind, and the limper, who are uh, in this hand so far. Yeah, the BB calls after you raise to 4x. It goes a limp. You raise to 20. We're playing 2-5 with two sevens, right? Right. From the button, the BB call, cold calls. You yeah. know, he's got money invested, so now he's only calling a little bit. Uh, 15. Right. But yeah, but mysteriously, the limper, who only has to call fifteen to win what fifty five, um, you know, depends on what the rake is. He somehow folds. Right, it's stupid. Now, do you think that you can? That's ah, fine. But do you think you can raise a little larger here? And can you figure out why you might want to raise a little larger? Uh, because I'm pricing them in with just any two cards. So yes, I should have raised a little larger. Well, it's not that it's just any two cards. It says first of all, you have the rake to deal with, and I don't know. I'm, I don't know what the rake is, but I'm going to. I'm, I'm certain that in a live poker room, it matters. Okay, so you do want to take down that limp. If I mean, if you think of poker hands as a bunch of steps towards getting all in, and you can win at any step, it's not a bad thing if you win right here. Uh, it's not like you have a hand that is going to play just marvelously after the flop. Uh, two sevens are going to almost always have overcards to them. Not always, obviously. You had some wonderful flops. But for the most part, your continuing equity will be unclear. And you have position, that's true. 
but winning the pot now, getting more money in while you're ahead against a limping range, and shutting out the BB is actually desirable and will help you win a little bit more. Two things. This is a mixed game. So for half hour, we play 2-2 uh, PLO, and a half hour, we pay, play 2-5 uh, uh, no limit. So that I think we just came off the 2-2 PLO, and I'm not normally in a 2-5 game. I'm raising to 30 or 35 maybe. Um, and I don't know why I raised so small here, but I might have been um, thinking about typical raise sizes in the, uh, in the two, two game. But, um, but yeah, that was a mistake. Oh, Dean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a mistake at all. I don't, I'm not saying it's a mistake. It's, it's a strategic consideration that if this player wants to see a flop and if he's decided to invest the least money, um, you can't just start making it 10 X, but punishing his strategy can involve making it more expensive um, he can say, gee, if I limp here, I'm going to see a flop with these two cards. And that's my strategic goal. I'm out of position. And it doesn't even say what position he's from, which is what you have to think about it. But if he's, say, under the gun, he has all these hands that are hard to open with. Um, even like pocket deuces don't really show a profit from under the gun, uh, especially in a, in a full ring game. So and if he's not getting getting laid a price that bothers him, um, he will generally be able to limp call. What's bizarre about this is he gets such a good price and folds. I don't even know what hand is incentivized to limp and then fold given the price. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Um, so, you, you know, in a sense, everything works out for you because if you could predict that this guy would be so sensitive to your, to your raise that you're just such a nitty personality apparently, which I don't believe, uh, that he has to fold facing uh, a 4x raise and then a call, a cold call from the big blind. Well, I mean, that, I mean, he he must think that you're wildly tight. Well, there are jokes about the room or around the room that I am really tight. But um, the truth of the matter is that there are a lot of nits that call my raises because they know that uh, I can bluff quite a bit. So I don't think that's true. All right. Well, we've talked over that. Uh, looks like we see uh, we see a flop because now that's what happens after you call and there's no more action, right? Uh, so there's 45 in the pot. The dealer puts down the six of clubs, the nine of clubs, the eight of spades, and the BB checks to you. What do you do? I bet uh, between third and half pot. So I bet 20. 45 in the pot, I bet 20, and because um, I got a pretty decent draw here, pretty decent hand, pretty decent draw, and he calls. Yeah, this is definitely not a bet. Uh, you want to check here for a lot of reasons. Your, your draw is strong, your showdown volume is marginal, and you can, you can simply win sometimes by either making your hand if you're behind by uh showing down the sevens or being able to call bets what happens here is if you bet a non-polarizing amount especially a small amount um you're going to get raised by a tough opponent maybe your opponent isn't tough and more money goes in 
with a draw that is not entirely uh, strong. You have the seven of diamonds and the, and the seven of spades, and there's two clubs on the board. And the board, and, and from the BB, uh, your opponent will have any number of hands that connect with this board, including 10-7, which you block. That's good news. But all clubs, even none-nut clubs, uh, straight flush outs, 9-8, 6-9, uh, pocket sixes, pocket eights, maybe pocket nines, three bet, um, 10, eight, uh, six, five, mm, six, seven, a tremendous amount of hands that want continuation on this board. So I don't see the reason for you betting. I see what you're doing is simply pushing the equity of your hand rather than thinking about your range versus his. Is that fair? Possibly. A lot of the poker theory out there now that you read, and the, you know, of course, after I just ranted about the uh, inaccuracies of much of the theory out there, is that you should bet a third pot a high frequency. If, if you're the pre-flop aggressor, you can bet a third pot with a very high frequency on the flop and not get in much trouble. Okay, the third pot bet. There's two. There's a couple things about it. Um, the idea that you can bet your whole range is a simplification and a mistake. There's very few flops where you can simply bet your whole range. And you're also not betting one third pot. You're betting like 40% of the pot. Um, as you get towards 40%, you're, beginning, you're at the edges of what would be called the beginnings of like a polarized range. That starts around 40%. And it really starts earlier, if you think about it, because you can't bet one-third on a lot of boards unless you're simplifying things for yourself. Um, actually, polarization starts even at very small bet sizings. Now, you're playing against a range. You're not playing just your hand. And so on certain boards, your reaction will be very different. And I want you to become very sensitive to which boards you should put money in and why. Sevens seem like a good bet if you're going to have a betting range, but you have a whole range from the button to worry about. You have all the naked aces, overcards, gut shots, underpairs, backdoor draws. Um, if you bet them all and you get check raised, or even if you get called and you face a lead on the turn, you have put more money in the pot than you want and your decisions become harder. So if you check correctly on boards where your opponent will give you trouble and only bet a smaller range of hands, your game is going to be a lot easier and you're going to face you're going to have higher EV decisions in position on the later streets. Um, the, the the language that a lot of poker players I wish they wouldn't use, but they say things like pot control or don't bloat the pot with a hand that can't stand it. Well, you're beginning to be on the edge of those things because although sevens on this board has a strong draw and some showdown value, when the club comes, uh, when other board pairing cards come on or, or pairs, which will call this small bet, um, now the pot's bigger and you haven't made your hand. Do you see the problem? I do. And I had typed this into the chat several days ago, you know, almost a week now. And I realized after I typed it in that I had made, I had made 
each decision incorrectly. In fact, I should have checked the flop, which is not my range, and bet the turn, which was my range card. So, so yeah, I kind of did everything backwards. So he does call. There's 85 in the pot, and what you want to be thinking about here is two things. Is this card good for you, for one thing? And what is your opponent's range at this point? When he goes, he goes check, bet, call on the flop. Like, what kinds of hands do you think that he doesn't check raise here? Well, he would check raise uh, sets. He would check raise not flush draws, I would think. Uh, he would check raise really good player is going to check raise nine, 10, you know, top pair with a gut shot. Maybe his range is, well, his range wouldn't be an over pair because he would have, um, he would have raised an over pair pre-flop. Um, so maybe he has like ace nine. Good. Ace. T- he cur- certainly could have ace nine. And one of the reasons that you don't want to bet here is against hands like ace nine or two pairs that you can improve. Now, on the on the turn, king nine improves. It's king of diamonds. That's one, you know, it's nine of clubs and the king of diamonds. So there's only two combinations of suited king nine. But, I mean, if this guy is loose, uh, he could have all the king nines that are available or nine combinations, I believe. Uh, that's a lot of hands that, that have you in bad shape. Uh, but it is, as you started to say, it starts to become a better card for you to bet. Um, he didn't check raise you, which is indicating you that he doesn't have the flop straight a lot because he would be incentivized to raise with the clubs out there. But And he doesn't have over pairs because of the hand reading, right? He doesn't have tens, jacks, uh, and above very often. So it's really looking like his hand interacts with this board like a pair and a gut shot. It just make a whole lot of sense. Everything from 6-5 up to 10-9. Um, that's a bunch of hands. I mean, I can't even think of all of them up, how many there are at the top of my head, but that makes sense for him to have, right? Yes, I agree. Now you can bet this card purposely and it's not just, you know, so, well, that's a card that hits me, but why am I betting? I'm betting because I can get value from worse and maybe an eight, which is, which hasn't improved and is only seeing, uh, has seen all but one card can fold. Maybe a nine can't fold. Maybe it can on the river. And the other reason is you're building a pot now on a card that's going to be hard for him to raise unless he's flopped it. And since you have two sevens, it's going to be hard for him to raise you because he's going to specifically want to be raising with five, seven and ten, seven. And he didn't raise. He's going to raise with sets on the flop. So he's unlikely to have a set. It's, it's looking a lot like he has a pair and a draw, possibly hands like. You know, as we mentioned, six five through six seven through ten eight, ten nine, things like that. Uh, we lose to some and we beat others, but we're setting ourselves up to win by betting a card that not only hits us, but he can't raise very often. And if he does raise when you could have hit the king, when you could have top set, it's going to be a very strong action, and you're going to be able to get away from it for the most part. So when the turn goes. Check, check after you betting. Your hand looks like what at this point? Uh, I'm thinking maybe ace-queen, ace-jack, um, ace-ten maybe. 
Uh, not ace king. I would bet ace king here. Ace high is a good way of describing it. Yeah, you're describing it well. It's looking like you made an unwise C bet, and now either one of two things happen. You hit the king and you have showdown value. You have showdown value that's worse than the king and doesn't need to bet, or you have air. In other words, your range looks pretty weak at this point. And so we go to the river, having put money in, questionably on the flop, not having taken our opportunity on the king, and are saying we have basically an aggregate maybe worse than a king. And the seven of hearts comes out, which is a really weird card because uh, it gives you a set, right? Yes, which normally would seem good, but it's a bad set. Um, yes, it's a it's a it's a bittersweet card to see. Um, but now describe what happens because uh, it gets kind of funny here. Well, he's looking somewhat uh, uh, impish um, and starts counting chips out in you know starts with maybe 40 and keeps increasing it until he finally gets up to his <laughs> his bet size that he uh, eventually wants. And in the middle midst of this, I'm trying to get him to stop putting chips in the center. I say, uh, what in the world are you doing over there? And he looks up with a smile and says, uh, I'm making a large bet. And, which he does. <laughs> he, he bets 160. So this whole time, <clears throat> we were deducing that he had like very likely a pair and a draw. And now he's making a twice pot bet on a one liner to a straight. What do you? What goes through your mind now? Well, he either has it or I'm I'm screwed, as some would say. The the. Uh, he, he, Either the nuts or nothing. Okay. It's a what we would call a polarizing bet. <laughs> it, it possibly is. I mean, that's, that's, that's how it's looking. Um, but what I want to focus in on is I want you to take your time, sort of breathe, and look at the board and decide what hands, what hands did improve here to hands that beat your now set. Well, 10-jack uh, comes to mind first, but any combination with the 10 in, 10-9, would be ones that he would complete from the, from the blind. Okay. So let's say, let's say this. Is this a guy from the big blind? Have you been observant enough to know whether he's going to play all the offsuit combinations of those sorts of hands? Does he have, you know, 10-8 off, 10-9 off, jack-10 off? I would say so, although his range, his typical range is very wide anyway, and you know, completing from the big blind, filling out to 20, his range is still going to be, even a typical player's range is going to be pretty wide. So the, the problem here, I don't think, and I'm, I'm not worried about this one, one hand. One hand making the right decision isn't going to make you as a poker player. We went over the idea, very important idea, that the betting is backwards on the flop and turn. So this hand ends up being, you, your, your range looks weak, okay? You, you look like you don't have a hand that can stand any action. And he's taking, as you have identified, a very polarizing action. And it's hard for you to identify how many hands that beat you exist. It's even hard to know. 
And thirdly, as we'll get to it, he's making a double pot bet, which you actually don't have to call that often. And the question is, is this the hand that you need to call? And one of the ways of figuring that out is, well, you bet the flop and then you check the turn. Would you ever play a hand with the 10 like this or, you know, a five? Well, I can't think of uh, five. Well, suited ace five, I might play like this. 10 jack? Yeah, probably not. I can't think of a way that I would, I can't think of a 10 exit I would have that I would have played this way um, in position. Right. So this hand becomes so much easier if you check the flop and then bet the turn. He's going to be able to react. You're going to be able to throw away your weakest draws and only continue with your strongest draws and your made hands that are strong. Now we arrive in this difficult scenario where you don't actually have many tens given the way you play because you would have barreled off with them hoping to get him off whatever hand, not even really focusing on what he could have and just how strong his range can be uh, from the big blind. Um, so now if you don't have any tens and you sort of block some of his draws with the sevens and his made hands, I want to say to you that you kind of have to call here because unless you're going to say, but Persuadio, this guy never bets unless he has it, which is a possibility, and you have to take that into consideration. This is one of the best hands you're ever going to have, and you've incentivized him to make this play against you. You've actually put yourself in the cage by playing your range in this particular way, which is you never made a bet on that street. You haven't gotten check raised, but you've set everything up so that when this river card comes out, you tend not to have it. And that's going to be a problem for you overall. And that can explain a lot of losing, even when it's not apparent, even when it looks like coolers. Does that make sense to you? It does. It makes perfect sense. Okay. So I, I, I tanked okay. forever and I ended up calling and I was good. Nice. And I'm glad you did that. Yeah. And as it happens out of the three hands I sent you, this is the only one I was, I was good. I guess I shouldn't have given that away if we're going to discuss another hand. But Well, we won't torment the listeners with all your hands, but we'll look at one more. Did, let's, let's talk about what did you see. Did he show his hands, his hand? Uh, he, did, he did not show his hand. Okay, that's interesting. So I assumed that he had, at the most, he had two pair. If you had called and he had two pair, he would have shown you. Okay. I mean, he would have think that he's good sometimes. Well, you have a point. Exactly. He took a he took a wild stab, most likely with a flush draw that was un was dis unconnected to the board. That makes sense. That okay, makes sense. so that's that, that, and that's worth knowing if you're going to play, and I you play at Charlestown. That's worth knowing about this guy. It's a good bet by this guy in many ways. He's identified that you look capped. He really got unlucky that you smashed the set on the end, and he probably wins a lot here. Whereas when you bet the turn and you say, hmm, my range is strong here, you don't have to face this bet. And the, and the counter-argument to what I'm saying is like, well, wait a minute, Chris, uh, that's huge EV for us if he's going to be taking these shots. Well, that's true, but you're going to get confused 
when you play on the board kind of oddly and kind of backwards, you're not going to know where you're at. And you kind of, I don't know what was in your head, but unless you spent two minutes counting combos, most likely it was a lot of very uncomfortable binary thoughts, Indeed. right? Indeed. You're, right. you're exactly right. It's, it's, there are a few times the river is going to hit me hard enough that I can call that bet. Yeah. Um, and yet you preserve that by checking the flop. Um, you preserve that equity. You get to see that easier. He could have made this really hard. He could have check raised the, the, the flop and blasted the turn. And now where are you? Uh, are you calling for a clear maybe six outs? And maybe it's not even clear then. Are you calling for a chop? Uh, things like that end up mattering as you go through the, the iterations of the game. So what I, so I want to say to you when you're in a downswing and you're struggling is to revisit your assumptions about how you're playing and really go back to what we call, kind of foolishly in, in, in respect, poker study. And like, well, what, what hands do what? What are their incentives? How, what am I doing? And to connect this to your whole life, you know, if that isn't interesting to you, if that's not the, the, the fascination that you have, if your interest is in money, it might not be the right thing for you to do right at the moment. I'm not saying get rid of poker, um, but you have to love looking at these scenarios or at least thinking about them or at least talk with them about other people. So I would say if you're not posting hands in TBR, if you're not talking with buddies and you're not watching poker videos, and you're not studying with Equilab or using a solver, the indications are you're kind of playing poker by the seat of your pants, and your win rate will definitely be on the on the suffering side for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, just one last thing. When you have so many abilities like you do, when you're, when you're experienced and you have other things you can do, you really may be even shooting yourself under the foot in terms of your income, because what, you know, what are you missing out? There's a cost sitting in a goddamn poker room all day. <laughs> Uh, you, you do make a great point. Um, can we look quickly at one last hand yet? Oh, you want to torment me now? Okay. Which yes, one? Yes, absolutely. Which one? Third. All right, beautiful. More 5-5 five, five NL. This is this is a bigger, little, slightly bigger game. 5-5 five, five NL, um, 900 effective, four limpers to me. So I'm in, I'm in uh, uh, seat nine, the button. Uh, yep. rate, raised to 35 with ace four. Uh, suited diamonds and uh, three and six call. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do this a little differently than I normally do, just to help people along here. There's four limps to you. At this point, you should just limp behind with Ace Four. Really? You're not going to get through all these guys. Okay, that they remember. Why are they limping? They're limping to see the flop. Um, you have positional advantage. Uh, and you have a moderately good holding that will play well, but you're going to have to flop something or bluff uh, any number of people. Whereas they have made a strategic error. They have allowed more and more people behind them. When that fourth limp goes in, they are giving you almost infinite odds on a call to cool them off. What about sitting in the blind? What about in the blinds? Would you squeeze here with this hand? Same thing. You're not squeezing anyone when they limp. It's a misuse of the word. Squeezing involves putting in dead money, but what puts in the least dead money? It's a limp. Okay. So you're not, I mean, you can be, you can, I, I love Doug Hall. He's a funny guy. 
and he made a lot of money at one two for a while stealing all the limps but what happens is eventually they adjust and you realize just how costly it is to start try taking people's limps from them it's a low it's a it's a good investment strategy in the pot odds model to limp uh, when people are going to be doing that stuff whereas if someone there's a limp, there's a raise and a call and a call. Now you've got a beautiful squeeze opportunity. Someone's attacking the limp. Now there's weak ranges calling. There's a lot of money to go after. Here you're going after Nothing. 20 bucks. Got you. And you're ending up with ace four, which is a, you know, it's a good hand. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I understand that it's a good hand and you have position and everything like should sort of line up for you. But once you get past three limpers, boy, they are going to see a flop. And all you had to do was put in $5 and you got to two. And they and they never charged you for realizing their equity. And now that's their mistake. All right. Noted. Okay, cool. <laughs> Noted, yes. I'm sure. There's a, there's a binder you're scribbling in right now for sure. <clears throat> I get So I get two callers. 115 in the, in the pot on the flop. It's Ace five of hearts and ace of clubs. So I have trips with a shitty kicker. Okay. Checks to me. I bet my third pot that, uh, who knows why I've been using that. It's just, uh, out there so much now that I use it as a default. Well, it's, 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 it's reasonable, but you're betting into two players. Okay. Which means your betting, your betting actually goes down one player's. They're just like everyone has an equity share in the pot, right? So even if it's reasonable to bet in position a whole bunch, the number of bets via the ratio of people are in the pot still has to go down. So what's happening here is, yeah, you're getting value from some draws and maybe is there other worse aces? Not really. Um, maybe 5x will call. Maybe some pocket pairs will peel one. So it's not the, it's not the worst bet. Um, but recognize going forward that the more people in the pot, the less you can put money in. Does that make sense? It's starting to. Okay. Now, why would I, why would I check behind here? Why would I not bet? I'd, I'd not bet because I have all. If I've raised to thirty-five over four people, I am saying I have a great hand. And indeed, I would have all the better aces. In fact, ace 10 and higher, all of which crush, crush the limps and can do well um, against any hand. What I'm saying is you have all these strong aces. And if you bet every single ace that you have, uh, what do you play the turn with? You're going to want to be checking some aces so you can play turns and rivers much more easily. It sort of relates to the last hand. So what we're seeing here is a pattern where you sort of, yes, you've depressed the price, which I think is good on this board. If you're going to bet, you should bet small, absolutely. But you you don't really have to bet anything actually here because you want to be able to communicate when you do have like pocket sevens and you don't want to bet or you do have king queen and you want to see a free card to suck out on, you know, whatever pairs are out there. You want to be able to communicate that I don't have an ace. And what ace is better to check back than a weak one? Uh, maybe a full house sometimes, but that's going to be only ace five, and there's very few combinations of that or, or pocket fives. Pocket fives want to bet anyway because now when they have an ace, you cool them off. So 
overall, we're seeing in just two hands a tendency to, yes, use some sophisticated sizing, but to still front load the aggression too much and not think about, well, how am I going to play turns and rivers? Yeah, they both call. So 215 in the pot now on the turn. Queen of spades hits the turn. Three, strangely, leads out for $75. Uh, Six folds, and I call. Okay, for listeners, we have a special notation system which helps get these things down faster in game. So three means the under the gun player, as in one is a small blind, two is the under the gun, or two is the big blind. Uh, so don't be confused by that. It just means the the, uh, the early position limper now leads on a queen into you, and um, and uh, the other unknown seat folds somewhere between under the gun and us on the button. Now that should grab your attention, right? And one of the reasons it should grab your attention is they limped from up front, which is going to include suited aces uh, and even some strong hands that were, you know, wanting to see a flop. We talked about at the top of the show, right? Why does someone limp? It's because they're afraid of raising, maybe, and maybe that's bad of them. But at least it's rational to think I will get to see a flop with a strong hand. Now, second of all, why is it also concerning? Well, the queen is your card, right? If you are isolating up to four players, you probably have queens and ace queen, and you bet small, and you could have bet queens. This player's lead is not particularly sound, okay? And you have to realize now that he is is communicating to you that one of two things. Either he has a very strong hand, or for some reason he doesn't believe you and wants to end the hand now. Which sounds more likely? Which makes more sense? I'm not sure which makes more sense. He, he could have a very strong hand and wants to get more money in the pot. Good. Uh, to keep me, keep me from checking back. Or he could just not believe me and want to take the hand down. Right. So of the two, leading because he thinks you're weak or leading for information is the least likely. Um, and that's because he recognizes that you were rec- you were representing that you hit the ace. And then when the queen comes, it's your card. So when he leads, even though he's leading small, 75 into 215, he is saying he is disregarding all that information. More importantly, if he thought you were bluffing, he wants you to bluff, right? He wants you to, to, to spend time putting money into the pot. Him leading here keeps you from bluffing. And now when you continue, your hands are mostly going to be aces. So he spends money on this information sort of block bet when you could have it. And you should be, your your alarm bell should be going off because you really should have no leading range except for the, except for the fact that unless you're very sophisticated in terms of understanding each other and he's saying, you know, I limp ace five and ace queen from up front so this is kind of a card that might hit you now i doubt you guys are on this sort of plane of understanding each other Uh, most likely what he's doing is he's controlling a very strong hand to showdown and i'd be very very concerned with that he should check and let you bluff or value that worse right so he's letting you off the hook he's letting you off the hook here if he has a strong hand okay so what happens? The nine of diamonds comes on. I, well, I call. 
Uh, I call his bet mm-hmm. the nine of diamonds hits the river, and he leads out for okay. about half pots, three sixty five in the pot. He leads out for one seventy five. Okay, one seventy five uh, into three sixty five. Your nine are effective. There's room to raise if you wanted to turn your hand into a bluff. Um, and that would be one of the reasonable things to do here, given that you're more likely to have ace-queen. But that re- relies on him being able to fold what he's representing, which is either, say, hearts, a misdraw, or a bluff. And let's talk about, about this player and what you know about him. How likely is he to be, say, leading a heart draw when the queen came in just out of nowhere and then actually follow through with the bluff. What's the probability of him doing that? Well, this player is not afraid to bluff. I will say that. He is a bit older than me, and I see him bluffing quite a bit. He, he, he loves to gamble. Uh, but every time that, <laughs> that uh, I think he's bluffing against me, he has a hand. So it, his history with me is that he is value only. Uh, so I'm, I know I'm kind of in trouble if he's continuing along with me or betting into me. Okay. Right. So what I want to focus on is that we have one of the worst aces you could possibly have. In fact, it's essentially you have no kicker, okay? Um, if he has ace-deuce or if you had ace-deuce, there would be no difference, right? Because you play ace-ace-ace-queen-nine. Your kicker doesn't even matter at this right. point. The, the probability of him taking a line where he leads into the board that you have already said you're strong on and then follows up on the river for a significant bet is basically uh, unlikely the point of being uncallable. If he starts taking lines like this, it's because he thinks because he, he thinks you're overfolding. But you're not overfolding. You're telling me that you paid him off again and again. Um, so I, do, I don't like this spot at all. Um, I don't like your C bet because the pot is even bigger and it denies yourself uh, the ability to play it. Or a range of cards on the turn. And I don't see this as a call in the end because he's saying to you that he has you beat. He's betting into cards that should hit you. And he's not even using a particularly polarizing sizing. He's just saying, here. <laughs> he's just saying, here, here's here, a half pot here, bet. Please call. <laughs> I'm randomly betting, right? I could be bluffing. Yeah. In oh. game, I saw this as a cooler. You know, in my mind, for some reason, I'm thinking, did you really get to the river with ace nine and did not put him on the pocket fives that he ended up having? Um, so I made the call, unfortunately. Okay, so he, he, he very likely has ace five, pocket fives, maybe a slow played ace queen. I would think he also has like ace ten, and when he bets small, it's because he doesn't want to face a bigger bet. He wants to control the pot with an ace. Um, so on the balance, he's just not bluffing enough. He's also not getting a lot of value from your strongest hand the way he plays. I think this is sort of a scared lead. He's not. He's kind of afraid to go for gold. He really should be calling again, uh, maybe check-raising the river or letting you barrel off. 
Um, and this is a weakness in a, someone's game for you to look at. But you have to understand what it means when he leads here. It doesn't mean a bluff on this board very often because it makes no sense to bluff. It makes sense to bluff catch. The queen doesn't improve him at all. It doesn't give him it doesn't give anything a draw except like king ten of hearts. It improves the nut flush draw on a paired board to a gutter to Broadway, but he's already losing. I mean he's he's just in trouble because you're saying that you have aces and you could certainly have ace queen. So he, he's making a poor lead. It's almost always for value. And he's betting small because it, he's kind of like scared of losing you. And he's and he's probing to keep the, the pot smaller. I mean, this is not a good play by him. But you can't reward him by, by paying off. And I don't think it's about the hands or thinking about coolers. It's, a, it's about thinking about binary decisions, which isn't a good way to think about poker. And it's about slowing down and, and doing the hand reading. And I think that's going to get you out of your downswinging Dean funk. <laughs> well, I guess on the good side, you've exposed uh, how poor, or what, what kind of an idiot I am at the poker table. And this should be an example to others to not play this way. So we have... Uh, We've generated some great content for the poker community to use uh, to improve their game. All right. Well, poker makes poker makes us all look idiots like idiots. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. All right. Well, Dean, I'm always happy to have you on the show. Is there anything else you need to to share with the listeners today? Well, nothing I can think of because if you remember, I have the the full editing authority before and after your interviews. So I can share anything that I feel like at any time. Uh, so I feel like I've, uh, I've uh, bared my soul and have nothing left to share. If that makes All any right, sense. Well, you haven't sent enough. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll call it here. Uh, hopefully you'll take out a bunch of that. I know I don't need to rant, but sometimes things just look so silly. I can't believe it. And I probably didn't even express myself clearly, but I want to sign off and thank everyone on behalf of Dean and myself. And uh, if, if he does leave in all those plans, hopefully let us know if that's what you'd like to see from the podcast. Because, you know, if we want to do, if we're going to do it, we might as well do it well. And uh, so Merry Christmas and goodbye. I agree. Thanks a lot. See you. And thank you once again for tuning into the Poker Zoo podcast. You can find us at persuadio.nl or thepokerzoo.com. Links back to the main website. Uh, any of the podcast aggregators of your choice, we would love to hear from you. Email persuadio at uh, gmail.com or thepokerzoo at gmail.com. And, of course, you can call the hotline, 410-775-6224. It's hard to believe that we've spent a year together, but Christmas and New Year's is coming up. And, as promised, after the end of the show, a bit of Harmony Delight. So, many years ago, maybe 10, well, might be 15 by now, years I years ago, I hosted a podcast for a championship chorus in Alexandria, Virginia, called the Alexandria Harmonizers. And um, during that podcast, I would request uh, tags from listeners. And uh, tag is simply a short bit of audio where you can teach four parts to 
You can pick four guys out of any group of singers and teach them a simple part and put it together, and it makes a great sounding bit of audio. So a friend of mine from Sweden, uh, Simon Rylander, whom I met in North Carolina at the uh, annual barbershop convention down there at uh, Pinehurst. So you can imagine a bunch of barbershop singers wandering around the exclusive golf club Pinehurst. <laughs> but we had a great time. And um, anyway, he sent me this tag, which was written by a friend of his. And so I think you'll enjoy it because it uh, shows you how the harmony parts work together and sounds awesome at the end. So here's Simon Thank Rylander. you, Dean. It's a pleasure to be here at the HarmoCast and uh, teaching a tag to all of you guys listening out there. When choosing the tag, I uh, wanted to come up with something unique that um, not many people have heard before, and at the same time, something that everybody would love. The problem, though, is that most tags that people love are very, very famous tags. But then I got to think of a friend of mine his name is Oscar Schoberg, and uh, he and I used to sing together in the Zero Eight Chorus. Uh, he writes really, really cool tags that we used to sing during the rehearsal and after the rehearsal. And um, out of the tags he wrote, my favorite one, which is also one of his first ones, is called Yellow Coffin. And the lyrics are, When I die, I want a yellow coffin. And the lyrics of this tag is probably a huge reason why I'm so attached to it. Anyway, it's a screamer tag. The pitch is A-flat, and there's going to be a huge post in the lead part that goes... When I die... And you just hold that forever. And, of course, the most awesome way to sing this note is to just belt it. Just go for it. Sing it in chest voice. I'll demonstrate it to you later. Anyway, the bass part goes something like this. When I die, I want a yellow coffin. When I, when I die. Now you can probably already figure out that this tag is going to contain some really awesome chords that you don't normally hear in other tags. Don't worry though, it's going to sound awesome. Now the baritone part goes like this. When I die I want a yellow coffin When I When I Now the wording of the tenor part is a little bit different. Uh, the tenor doesn't actually sing, I want a. It just holds, when I die, yellow coffin. The tenor also starts below the post, so it sounds like this. When I die, yellow coffin, when I, when I, 
And when you put it all together and make the post a little bit longer and add some interp and some general awesomeness, it sounds something like this. When I die, I want a yellow coffin. When I, when 